Thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. I'm so excited. Um, so the first question I want to ask is about your first pregnancy. What was that like for you? You know, how did, how'd it go? Um, it, so there are some things that went really well, you know, luckily I didn't have any major complications, but there were some other things that were really tough. Um, I was really sick for the first almost six months. Of oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I was like one hospital admission away from a diagnosis of hyper, I don't know how you pronounce it. Hyperanemesis or something. Yeah. yeah. HG. So I didn't make it that far, but I was like puking every 30 minutes for <gasps> months until they oh, find no. some medication. So yeah, that was really rough. Um, but by the time, once I got past that, things were a lot easier. Um, the pregnancy itself went very smoothly. We didn't have any complications uh, until the end when I went in for my 35 week appointment and they were doing non-stress tests regularly because I had gestational diabetes. Um, so he wasn't moving very much on that <laughs> ultrasound or on that non-stress test. So they said, go downstairs for an ultrasound. It was this in the same building. Um, so I went and I told them, I was like, I've been feeling kind of funny. I, you know, I had the whole, what I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the, um, mucus plug came out and I was like, things have been kind of odd. They're like, oh, that stuff comes and goes through pregnancy. You know, you're still really early. Don't worry about it. So I went down for the ultrasound and this lady was like pressing around trying to get a picture and I felt a pop and my water broke during the oh, ultrasound on oh. the table. Yeah, I was, I was totally out. The tech was way freaked out. She like called the office and said, you have to send a nurse down because she didn't know what to do with it. Uh -huh. um, so I had to put on a pair of scrubs that were like three sizes too small and wait for my husband to come pick me up. And they said, just go right to the hospital since you're so early. Um, so I did and things went very quickly from there. It was only a seven hour labor, even though oh my it was gosh. Nice. Um, and he was early. Yeah, it was, it was intense. Um, luckily we have a great hospital with a great labor team uh, and they had a level three special um, special nursery on site. So he didn't have to be transferred anywhere after he mm -hmm. was born. Mm -hmm. uh, and luckily he was born without any complications. Oh. The second part to the urgency of the story is that since I was, uh, it was a first time pregnancy and I was only at like six centimeters. Um, when they checked me, my doctor actually left to go to a meeting. She left the hospital because they assumed it would be several more hours to go to an on-site oh, meeting. Oh my God. <laughs> I went from six to 10 in 25 minutes, which was horrifically painful. <laughs> I do not recommend it to anybody. <laughs> it was oh like really intense. Uh, my mom labored the same way. So um, that wasn't entirely a surprise, but yeah, I, I kept telling them like, I don't, again, things feel kind of funny. So um they had me sit up in bed. I had been just in one place since he was early. They wanted to do continuous monitoring. So they had me all hooked up and I hadn't been moving around. And as soon as I sat up, I kind of felt a thunk of him, like, <laughs> just like engaging and starting to slide down. I was like, uh, I think we need a doctor. And then things were super fast. And they kept telling me, just don't push, don't push, don't push. The doctor's on her way. She's going to be here. And I thought they meant from like another room or another floor. And when, it, when they just kept saying she'll be here, soon I was like wait a minute are you telling me she's not even like in the hospital so she had to come rushing back and he was born probably I don't know 
three to five minutes after she walked into the room. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And we laugh about this now because my first is very strong. When he decides he's going to do something, he just does it. So I think the labor and delivery was very um, fitting for his personality. But uh, after he was born, they just took him to the nursery and we actually didn't get to see him for a couple hours because uh, since he was five weeks early, they had to check him out, make sure his blood sugars were okay, make sure his breathing was okay. Um, Good job, guys. spent the first couple of weeks in, a, in Isolette, one of the little, like, um, like cubicles that keeps him nice and warm and yeah. quiet environment. So, uh, so, yeah, ultimately everything went well, um, and there weren't any long-lasting complications, but there were definitely some moments that were a little unnerving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, having things happen so unexpectedly we had like just had a baby shower a couple weeks before and I had just finished on Black Friday um purchasing all of like a full bits and pieces that we needed we didn't even have like a bassinet or anything set up mm-hmm. and he came less than a week later so oh my gosh that wow <laughs> that is that is intense <laughs> I can't even, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. You weren't even like, you were just going in for like the, the stress test, right? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I signed off of my work meeting and I said, I've got an appointment. I'll see you guys in a couple of hours. And then I had to text my boss from the hospital and be like, uh, I'm not coming back in, um, probably ever. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I, uh, as a preemie, they said, keep him out of daycare if possible. So Mm-hmm. I stopped working and came home um, just to be with him. Thankfully, just the day before, this never happened in my job. Like, I never had a date without meetings. But the day before he was born, my schedule, schedule like, magically cleared. Everyone canceled every appointment I had the entire day. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is great. I'll just go through and get everything set up for my maternity coverage. And if, I mean, I don't know what would have happened if that hadn't, my colleagues would have been left with a total mess. But luckily, I was able to get it all in order. And he came the next day. Wow. Oh my God. That's crazy. So can you speak a little bit about what, what it felt like or what you went through um, having gestational diabetes? Like what was, what was that like? Um, luckily mine wasn't too bad. Um, it wasn't caught until a bit, a little bit later in the pregnancy because I had some travel in between when they did like the first and the second test so it wasn't confirmed until the very end of my second trimester typically the second trimester is the toughest Mm -hmm. um, because that's when your body's most resistant to insulin because of the hormones involved which I Mm -hmm. found out with my second pregnancy um with my first one it wasn't bad I just had to kind of monitor my blood sugar after I ate Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to cut out some sugar and refined carbs and things like that that my body didn't respond to very well Mm -hmm. Uh, it was kind of annoying to have to haul all the way into the office every week for non-stress tests, but um, honestly, sometimes that was a nice perk because it helped with anxiety. Like if I ever had a night where I was worrying about, you know, all the things you worry about when you're pregnant for the first yeah, time or any yeah. other time, and I could say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'll be in the office in two days, and if anything's wrong, I'll pick it up. So right. that, that wasn't too bad. The test itself was probably the worst part because I don't do well with fasting, and I also have a hard time getting my blood drawn, and for the three-hour test. God, um, oh yes. 
Yes. It's awful. And so like it's god awful. Sitting there, the more dehydrated I've become and the more nauseous I am and the harder it is for them to get caught. Yeah, that was probably the worst part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so side note, I'm I'm pregnant. <laughs> Thank you. I haven't like told, I mean, my family obviously knows, but like, I haven't like gone like public or anything. Like my, um, my sugar tests came back. The hour long sugar tests came back uh, or they, they took my blood and I had like elevated sugar pre-diabetic. And so I had to do the, the hour test and like that came back abnormal. So then I had to do the three hour test. Um, and like, I was just, so sick like I wasn't like throwing up and puking everywhere but I was I was just like nauseous all the time and like dizzy and I was just like I don't remember feeling this like bad before like I don't know what is wrong but something is not right so I did the three hour one and it was like I you know and, and they were like understanding but oh my gosh like sitting in there it's like three hours and finally I was just like look I don't feel well like I need to do something and so then she like let me go and sit and they had like a back room with like recliners and so I got to like sleep and just like rest because I was just like I I think I might she was just like try not to throw up because if you do we have to do the whole thing over again (laughs) and I was just like trying to like hold everything together luckily I distracted myself with like um kitchen I don't know it was like night kitchen nightmares or something like I distracted myself with that like awful show and like it was fine but and I ended up like passing so but I still still like do feel really sick when I eat certain like really carby food so I've just been like monitoring my own like kind of diet you know throughout this this process did you how did your care team so, so tell me about your your second son um, um, my his birth. He so that went very similarly to William. When I was pregnant with William, I was sick for about the same amount of time. Um, in fact, I luckily my mom's a teacher. She had the summer off, so during the worst part of the first trimester, she was able to come up for a couple of weeks and help with William mm-hmm. because I was just basically in bed, um, even with the medication. And once that passed, that. Um, things got better. Again, I also had the gestational diabetes. It was a little harder to manage the second time around because um, we found, I found out earlier and in the second trimester, I felt like if I ate barely anything, my blood sugar jumped and I really didn't want to have to start taking insulin because I know that can be challenging to um, balance. So I was working really hard on trying to keep things smooth with just nutrition. Um, and that, that was really hard, especially because when I'm sick, usually the only things that sit well are like potatoes and pasta and bread. Yeah. Toast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I wasn't eating a whole heck of a lot the second trimester. Uh, but once that calmed down, um, it was a lot easier the last couple of months. I didn't have to worry as much about the blood sugar. Um, I did have yet another uh, unexpected and very quick labor. Um, I was I was nervous the last couple of weeks of pregnancy because I'd gone early with my first. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they said I should watch it the last couple of weeks, and I was having a ton of Braxton Hicks, mm-hmm. um, but n- nothing that was serious enough to go to the hospital. So I had been having these sessions where, like, I get a lot of Braxton Hicks, and then they'd peter out, and nothing would happen. So the morning he was born when I was feeling some of those contractions, I'm like, okay, these are a little bit stronger than normal. They hurt a little bit more, but 
I'm not going to do anything about it because it just always peters out. I, at that point, I was, I totally thought I'd have to go in for an induction like they've been talking about stuff because they said if I didn't go in like the next three or four days by next appointment, they were going to induce because of the gestational diabetes. They don't want you to go too long with that. So the morning he was born, I was pretty dismissive. Um, until they started getting more painful. And then it was like, okay, maybe this actually is labor. And my husband, who plays in a church band, he was like, should I go or stay? I'm like, well, we probably have at least a couple more hours. So like, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Luckily, right as he was leaving, my water broke. And I said, okay. And as soon as my water broke, things just like took off. I couldn't even, I was trying to pack up the last couple of things in my bag. I couldn't move. The contractions were so bad. We called um, his parents to come over because they were going to stay with William until my parents could get up from Maryland. And by the time I was heading to the car after they got here, I was like, do, I, like, do we need to call an ambulance? We almost stopped and called an ambulance on the way over because I could like I could feel that same transition period. I think I had another 20 minute transition chunk. By the time we got to the hospital, the way our hospital is set up is you go to the ER entrance and they have an elevator through there that goes up to labor and delivery. So we pull up to the ER entrance. I got out of the car and I just like dropped to all fours involuntarily ah. in the car almost on the ground because I couldn't stand upright. This lady brings over the, um, wheelchair and she said like you've got to sit all the way back in it I can't push it when you're sitting too far forward I can't push you I can't I can't move you I'm like lady a I cannot sit further back because my body literally will not bend like that when this child is on his way out and b if you don't move you are going to be delivering this baby yeah you're going to catch my baby right here right now <laughs> so we got up to labor and delivery the doctor like she saw us come in from roll in from the um um, elevator and she said she called for a cart a delivery cart and all the nurses like they didn't even wait or anything they just ran after us into the room I got up on the delivery bed was not in a gown nothing just like took off the relevant articles of clothing and he was out I didn't I barely even had to push so that labor was two hours starting oh to my god <laughs> probably the worst car ride of my life because I I almost had him in the car like if I had not been actively holding him in I think he probably would have been born in the car um and I knew there was meconium in the fluid because when my water broke it was a weird like green brown color so mm -hmm. I'm really glad that we made it to the hospital yeah um, luckily he hadn't aspirated any they just cleaned him off really well and I I just remember the first look got at him he was laying over on you know they had him on like the little warming table next to me cleaning him mm -hmm. off and checking mm -hmm. him out he had his hands up by his face and he was like he looked like he was thinking what just happened friends and family were shocked because I had you know we just let people know we were heading to the hospital and 25 minutes later we were texting saying the baby was there we wow. checked the times and it was like 18 minutes from when we left the house to when he was born at the hospital so oh my god <laughs> yeah my doctor said if, if we have a third which we're not sure if we will or not she said we'll just schedule an induction for you because you don't want you to like have the baby in the bathtub at home oh my god yeah oh my gosh i don't i just I'm imagining there's like this um, viral video of this woman who 
gives birth in the back of like a, a New York City like cab. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like it was, it, it, it was it was so intense. And the cab driver is like driving, he's like speeding, yep. he's like looking back, and they're like, keep your eyes on the road. Like <laughs> and yeah, it's it's so that's so intense. Oh my gosh. Wow. We had a conversation about halfway through the 15 minute drive to the hospital. We were stopped at an intersection. Um, and I was like, I feel like I'm going to jump out of this car and like have this baby in the intersection. It was so intense. And he said, should I pull over and call an ambulance? And I was like, if we wait for an ambulance to get here, we, we won't make it. We'll, we'll get there faster just driving on our own. But a lot of people, I've heard from a lot of people like, oh, that's so great. Fast labors. You don't have to be in labor for that long. And I don't think people realize that faster doesn't necessarily mean easier like mm -hmm. to go from two or three centimeters to fully dilated in two hours it, like uh -huh. it it's hugely painful uh -huh. and it's very intense and I hear other women sometimes talking about like oh I was able to like listen to music and lean on my husband or partner and do all these things yeah I was like there's I literally just white knuckle hang on for my life <laughs> yeah it's like, like a roller coaster ride just like ah this baby's coming it's scary. It is a really yeah. scary feeling to be yeah. in the car and be like, you know, cause you hear stories of babies being born with the cords around their neck or, you know, hemorrhaging or whatever, like stuff mm -hmm. can go really bad, really fast. And to sure. me that like felt terrifying to be in the car and not sure if like we would make it or if something like that would happen. And thankfully everything worked out fine. Yeah. But you know, if I had to choose, I don't know that choose a two hour labor. <laughs> Wow. I can't even, I can't even imagine. So like after everything was said and done, what did your healing processes look like both times, like in terms of your postpartum and just like kind of getting back to yourself? He, uh, I would say healing was probably easier than the pregnancies and deliveries themselves. Mm -hmm. I have tended, even though I have more difficult pregnancies with being sick, I've tended to bounce back fairly quickly mm -hmm. afterwards is a blessing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the hardest part for me both times was breastfeeding because with my first, William, he was in the NICU. Um, for almost the first two weeks he was in there, I couldn't even breastfeed him because we tried and he just got, with preemies, it's really hard for them to coordinate breathing, sucking, swallowing, like all the things they need to do for nursing. Mm -hmm. um, and he was just getting like overwhelmed. His oxygen was dropping. So I could only pump. And when you give birth early and you can only pump, your body does not respond the same way as someone mm -hmm. who's able to nurse right from the beginning. And both of my kids had tongue ties um, okay. that made it hard yeah. for them to nurse too. So all of that together, I had trouble with supply with both pregnancies, um, with both newborns. And with William, I spent so many months pumping and even when he was mostly on formula, I'm still trying to get some breast milk in there because sure. you know, everything read about breast milk being the best. And it is, it's wonderful. And if you can nurse, like it's an amazing thing to do, but it just yeah. didn't work for me. And it took me particularly the first time around, it took me a lot of time to like process that because I was totally, I was going to nurse until 18 months and not do anything else and all that kind of stuff. And, and it just, eventually we got to the point where my pediatrician was like, if you're looking for permission to quit, this is like, you have permission to quit if it's just not working. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't, and it was really starting to take a toll on my mental health because yeah. I had to 
um, pump and even pumping, I wasn't getting that much. And like, I'd be sitting there for 45 minutes trying mm -hmm. to get enough for like one three ounce bottle. And yeah, um, if I had to go back and change anything, that's what I would change because I feel like I missed out on some things and I was so stressed out about that. Like I still enjoyed William's infancy. Um, but that was a layer of stress that I didn't need to deal with that. It's I a lot. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> It's a lot. I, um, so I had to supplement with formula and I was never really able to get to the point where we were exclusively breastfeeding. We went through something similar in that like we had to supplement with supplement with formula. He wasn't gaining enough weight and I like beat myself up a lot. And like, I would, I just like cried every day. Like it was, it was really hard. Um, and so eventually I just got, became okay with um, you know, formula feeding. And then I would, I would still, we would just nurse. Um, and it was, it was mostly for comfort. And I was just like, if this is what it's going to be, then fine. Like I threw my pump out. I threw my pump away after two months. I was like, this is, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I didn't like the sensation of like being hooked up to the machine and like, it was, it was rough. So yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Um, yeah. So then what kind of support did you have in your postpartum? I had, um, I had a really nice support network of my husband and my mom, my best friend, my sister, my mother-in-law, everyone kind of took turns mm -hmm. um, both times helping as much as they could. So um, my husband took as much time as he could with his paternity leave from work. And then when that was over yeah. uh, with William, it was a little harder because he actually postponed that. So right after William was born, he went back to work because we wanted to save all the paternity leave for when we were actually home. Yeah. So for the first couple of weeks that I was by myself, they had a really nice program where they were, um, I was discharged, but I was allowed to stay in, uh, they had like a wing of rooms they weren't using right next to the NICU. Mm -hmm. um, so as part of his NICU coverage, I was allowed to stay in one of those rooms and I got meals and things like that. It's a wonderful program. So I didn't have to leave him, which was amazing. Wow. And the nurses were just fantastic. You know, they took care of um, one or two of the feedings at night so I could get some extra sleep. And um, that part of it was great. It was, it was a little weird being in the hospital by myself, like in this wing, there's no one else. So like you go through the big doors into the wing and it's just like empty. It's almost like a horror movie set. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like in the winter and it'd be snowing and sleeting and all this stuff. So that part was a little strange, but I'd hang out in the NICU almost all day with the baby and the nurses and that worked out really well. And then at home, um, Ryan was home for a while. And then I had a series of like week long visits from, um, my mom, my sister, my best friend, they all came up. So between all of that, um, and we did something similar for when James was born, I had a lot of help through, I think like week seven or eight, which, which meant a lot. And then, um, after that, I was on my own with, um, my in-laws coming in every now and then to help since they live right down the road from us. They did a lot of day-to-day stuff with us. So, um, yeah, I would say my recovery was not too bad in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, and it was definitely important having people who could like jump in and do dishes and laundry and particularly the second time around help with, 
um, our older one who had just turned two and that kind of gave him a sense of like, oh, I have people focusing on me and um, helping like keep his schedule the way it usually was. So all of that worked well. Good. Okay. So what's, um, what's the biggest difference being a mom of one to, (laughs) and then going to transition to, uh, being a mom of two? Like what's the biggest, what was the biggest adjustment, I guess, for you? I think the biggest adjustment was having to juggle the two different kids needs and decide to be prioritized at any given time because you know with your first I just prioritized him all the time and not in like a you know always spoil you way but it was just like if this is what he needs this is what he needs and we'll you know wait to do other things until we get those needs met and then when I had the two they both have equally important needs at the same time and a lot of times you can't fulfill both like you've got to pick one or the other because they're opposing you know the baby needs to sleep and William needs some one-on-one time so like it took a lot of brain work to figure out how to balance the two and kind of get adjusted to being okay with the fact that usually one of my kids was like not a hundred percent like obviously all their basic needs are met and they neither would never go hungry or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes a baby would have to cry a little bit longer than I would normally leave a baby crying because I've got to finish, you know, changing the toddler's diaper or giving him a hug because he fell or whatever. And a lot of times it was reversed. Um, And William had a hard time with that too. He's, Uh he is really a quality time kid and it's important to him that the people that he loves are like invested in what he's doing and like right there with him. And, that was a hard transition for him um a little bit bumpy for a bit but eventually we figured it out okay so what has pandemic parenting looked like for you and how has it evolved since we since we first started lockdown in march oh i mean pandemic parenting i think is just trying to survive one day at a time really one day at a time um i think in the beginning you know, trying to come up with like all these ideas to pass the time and make things fun and um, thinking like it'd be a couple months and then we'd start getting back to normal. And as time has gone on and it's become more clear that this is going to be, you know, six months, a year, 18 months, who knows, like this is a long haul and just short stint. Um, it's, it has been a challenge trying to figure out how to meet needs and, you know, help the kids develop the way they need to, but also maintain safety. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the area where we are, people are not as serious about like masking and distancing and mm-hmm. things like that. It's been harder for us to get out and do things because we are, and when other people aren't, it's, the two don't mix, you know, a lot of people are doing a lot more things than we're, we personally are comfortable with. And I understand why people are doing that. You know, you've got to find your own balance between living your life and staying safe, turn more inward and try and rely more on our own internal resources with ourselves as parents and stuff we can do at home um, rather than all of the stuff we usually do outside at home, like the library and preschool and things like that. So um, sometimes I've kind of felt like I'm living through life on the prairie, like we used to play at when we were kids, and it's definitely yeah. not as much fun 
when it's a reality and it's not just an imaginary game. <laughs> so, like, don't see any other human beings for three weeks at a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also, um, you know, we've also had some pretty neat time together as a family that I don't know that we would have gotten otherwise. So mm-hmm. we try and find the, the positives in it. Okay. Um, how have you taken care of yourself, like, during this time? Um, that's probably an even harder challenge than parenting because time is a really big, I'd say like time is the resource that we have the least of right now because we don't have any outside help. We, you know, we can't just drop the kids, the babysitters for an afternoon or something if we have to get stuff done. So, um, it's been hard to find ways to take care of myself because I'm so busy just trying to keep up with like the basics um, of family life. But I think the biggest thing for me has been letting go of the idea of productivity or like trying to get things done or organized. Like I already had to do a lot of work letting that stuff go when I had my first, because Mm -hmm. I think you and I know this from our time together at school, we're similar in that we like, like things to be a certain way. And we want them to be like on track and clean and organized and in place. And like, you just can't have it that way when you have kids under normal circumstances. Yeah. yeah. A pandemic. I, I feel like just in the last month, I finally gotten to the point where I'm okay saying, okay, I am going to put down a huge chunk of housework and laundry and whatever, because I have to exercise or get to sleep earlier tonight or do something like that, or I'm not going to be able to do any of it much less the stuff that I'm having trouble putting down. So um, that's really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've finally gotten to the point where <laughs> I'm okay doing it because I've tried to hold all the balls up in the air and it just is not possible without getting like totally exhausted or sick. Right, right, right. No, I get it. Um, yeah, I've, I've, long since let go of any semblance of productivity like yeah I'm just like oh I washed the dishes today whoop, whoop. like I did that, that. that, is, that is <laughs> like that's an achievement like I vacuumed oh snap like look at me yep. <laughs> and then that's it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um okay <laughs> um so this summer uh when the world caught the Black Lives Matter fire. How did you process the movement um, for yourself? And how did you, if at all, explain it to your little ones? Like if, I don't know if they were like kind of aware or cognizant of like what was happening or they probably may have seen something and then just been like, oh, what's, what's, what is that about? Like how, so how did, how did you process it for yourself? And then how did you explain it to your, your kids? I, for me, I think that part of the story probably goes back to the 2016 election. Um, I really became more aware of and involved in anti-racist work as a result of that election. It's a mark of my huge privilege in life that it took me that long to um, get involved. And it took that election for me to see how bad things really were in the U.S., but Um, after that, I was looking for ways to kind of try and be proactive, um, in pushing back on a lot of what that administration and that campaign stood for. And I ended up getting connected in with the local Pittsburgh group, um, Mm -hmm. 
that their, their basis is intersectional feminism. So um, a big emphasis of that work is Black Lives Matter and um, Black people's lives, particularly in Pittsburgh, particularly Black women, and what we can do to support them um, and kind of fight for a better world for them and for their kids. So I had already kind of been involved in and starting to do that work before a lot of the protests and stuff took off. So for me, that moment was like a natural, not natural, I don't want to say there's anything like positive or natural about what happened, but I could already see where that came from. It, it wasn't a surprise to me that people were that upset because I'd, I'd been involved in people being upset and trying to do something about it for a little while. Um, but I was really glad to see that if something like that had to happen, there were a lot of, a lot more white people responding to it than I had seen previously. Um, so that to me felt different than what I'd seen really the couple of years leading up to it. Um, I didn't really, I mean, it was, it was hard to process in that I really wanted to be out there doing a lot more in person than I was able to. Um, I didn't join physically with any of the protests because we were trying to, and still are trying to distance as much as possible, but sure. we don't money, um, dropped off supplies, like did whatever we could from a distance perspective, um, to try and stay involved. And then also, uh, increase education of people around us, particularly, you know, white family and friends to try and continue that momentum after mm -hmm. the initial protest, because there's still a lot of work to be done. So from a kid's perspective, we haven't talked about it too much. Um, they don't, we have been trying to limit screen time, so they didn't really see a whole lot. Um, where we are in our little <laughs> suburban bubble, there wasn't really anything, you know, going on right in front of our house. So um, we haven't had a whole lot of conversations with them specifically about the protest, but we do try and work in um, talking about diversity and the history of racism in the U.S. in age-appropriate ways. So I've been trying to um, find books that work for their age. If we're looking at stuff, we point out like, you know, color are people's skin? What are the differences between them? Do you see a lot of white people? Do you see a lot of um, brown or black people? Like we have those conversations because I'm hoping to raise them to be aware of that stuff from the start instead of yeah. not really realizing it until adulthood like I did. Yeah. Okay. So you're pretty vocal on social media. Um, how did you work through potential backlash from like friends and family who didn't or claim not to like understand what was happening on such a public forum? We are still kind of working through that. We have had backlash um, and it's led to some pretty challenging conflict in mm -hmm. between family members. And I think my husband and I have both just gotten to the point where we feel like it's it's too important to not talk about. And, you know, I used to worry a lot in the past, especially I think a lot of people in their early to mid 20s kind of worry about fitting in and people liking them. And um, once I got a little bit older into my 30s and had some more life experience and also just saw how this really affected, you know, people who are not white in this country. Like we, how can we ignore this? Like I, I am no longer comfortable sitting at home when I know this is going on, and we're not talking about it. So that kind of like 
those feelings were bigger than the feelings of worrying about what people were going to think of me if I posted about it. Mm-hmm. I, I try, I try to find a balance between meeting people where they are and also not um, allowing racism to continue around me. So how to explain that? Like, I know where I was, you know, five or six years ago, and I had a lot of growing I needed to do and things I needed to realize. And I had people who were gentle with me and allowed me that room, you know, Mm -hmm. while still holding me accountable. So I think it's important for us not to try and personally attack or like be mean or nasty or anything like that to the white people around us, particularly because white people tend to listen to white people. (laughs) And if there's going to be change, we as white people need to be talking to our fellow white people. Like that conversation has to happen. So I don't want to like burn bridges or shut those links down, but Uh we also are serious about holding our boundaries and calling things out when we need to. So Uh I don't know that I'd say I found a good balance yet. It's something we're constantly working through um, and trying to reevaluate and trying to help people understand like, we're not attacking you personally, but we've got to talk about this stuff. And like, it has to be a real discussion. We can't hide behind being nice anymore because we're dying. Right. Yeah. Like um, respectability politics and like niceness. Yeah. I get that. Um, And I also appreciate you saying that like white people tend to listen to white people like I feel like this is definitely a conversation that has been happening in black and brown communities for a while and it's just now that it's like we've had this pandemic and like everybody's frustrated and everybody's tired now it's like in at the forefront of like everything and so it's now the first time that you know everybody has got to like kind of confront it and um I think a lot of times there there is to your your point that like white people tend to listen to white people I think that that is a very honest way of putting it and an uh, an honest way of I guess establishing yourself as like an ally to I guess black and brown people when they may not when their voices may not be heard you know otherwise so I think you know that's that's um a really good point and I appreciate you like you know, making that point in this conversation. Um, so then just as we're navigating like all these societal shifts and like parenting and, and stuff, like what does it look like for you to do your part in raising humans that don't perpetuate harm? Like, what does that look like? For me, what I try and focus on is rather than telling them how they should be, or trying to like make them be a certain way um I want to equip them with knowledge and also the ability to critically think about things so that when they do you know get out to the real world and our adults making their own decisions like they feel capable of doing that and that they can do that with clear vision, you know, really understanding a lot of the history and how the world works and why things are set up the way they are. It's like, I feel like they, like they need tools more than they need me telling them you have to be this way and no other. Um, because they're, you know, they're individuals 
they might think differently than I do um, when they're adults. And there's nothing I can do to control that, but I can hopefully control um, giving them the kind of resources and the mental development they need to think critically about all of that. Yeah. And in particular, just being real about how our country is structured. Cause I feel like our education system right now kind of, and this is how I was raised. It, it presents racism as something that was a really nasty part of our past. That's now been fixed, you know, with the civil rights movement and um, that now it's only individual people who are bad, who are racist and they're kind of like, you know, the bad apple idea. And so just don't be one of those people and it's okay. Right. And right. We want our kids to grow up understanding that it's like, it's a lot deeper than that. And for them to, to be able to see all of those structures that are in place. Um, and we worry sometimes, you know, the area we're in is it's, it has diversity, but only in certain ways, you know, it t if there are people who are not white here, they tend to be from ethnicities that are considered, uh, what's that term? I know we talked about it in class, the model, like, you know, model yeah, ethnicities. Yeah, like the model, model immigrants. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so things, at least from what I've experienced so far, I haven't gotten into the um, school system here yet, so I don't know what's being taught in classrooms, but it can be a very monochromatic way of looking at life. And, um, you know, we've taught, we've thought about like, should we be here? Should we be raising our kids here? But we feel strongly that if we don't stay, if people like us don't stay and we don't have the conversations and we don't exemplify the change ourselves, then change will not happen. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, we're definitely not perfect. I'm not perfect. I learn things all the time where I'm like, oh, I was totally doing that. And that's not a good idea. So we always revise as we go, but that's what we kind of try and keep in, in the center sites, like giving them critical thinking skills and information and tools so that they can um, continue that work like in their own lives, however it looks for them. Cool. Yeah, it does. It makes complete sense. Like, I think yeah, it is important um, when you're raising children to understand that like they are their own people for sure. And I like that you pointed out that it's not necessarily about telling them a way to be like, you have to be good or you can't be racist or you can't be this or that, but really like making sure that they're equipped with the tools to be able to think critically about things. And I think a lot of times, especially like even in my own upbringing, a lot of a lot, I, I don't ever remember a, a, a time when I was kind of like called on the carpet by like any, any adult kind of to think critically about like, oh, well, why are things this way? Or why are people this way? Or, you know, like, why are there different kinds of people? And like, what creates, what creates this? What creates div divisiveness? What creates um, social economic um, differences? And um, you know, I was, it was just like, oh, well, that's just like the way it is. And so just like, don't be, don't be poor or like, don't be, you know, like get a good job and like, don't be, don't be mean to people. Don't be bad, you know? And it's just like, well, that's, that's great. But then I don't know what to do with that. Um, yeah. You know, it makes life. it all about the individual. Yeah. Instead of looking at, like, so, okay. You know, you don't do well in school, but 
there's a lot of factors that go into school and how school is developed for certain types of learning versus others. And so, yeah, just being able to think through that instead of, mm-hmm. like you said, things are just the way they are because it's the way they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like those people don't try as hard or, you know, whatever. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so what does the word motherhood mean to you? <laughs> Never be alone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right now, at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, motherhood. I, something I go back to a lot is that to me, it means like having the worst times and the best times at the same time. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done, mm-hmm. but also the best and most rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, and it just, it's so hard to describe until you do it. Like, oh my God. <laughs> so if you could describe your motherhood experience in a sentence of only six words, what would that sentence be? Oh, um, sentence of only six words. Mm. And it could be like funny. It doesn't have to be like serious. You know, it could be funny. Oh, I know, but I have I have a hard time being funny. Some version, like if I had to use a string of words together, it might not even be like a full sentence, but like life changing, but so worth it. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right, mine was sometimes there's pee in your hair. Yeah. <laughs> also accurate I was one of the reasons I was slightly late is I was cleaning up some pee in the hallway oh god (laughs) yes okay thank you for being honest because like yeah uh, we're potty training now or beginning we're about to begin we've like have had conversations about the potty and so but yeah we've had like already some accidents whoa you okay We've had some accidents, you know, where we just like missed or, you know, just like didn't make it and just like peed on the floor. <laughs> and it's just like, oh my God, like what, what am I doing? <laughs> Potty training is the least favorite part of parenting for me so far. Cause we, my first is incredibly strong-willed and he was almost fully potty trained February, March after he turned three, he was like going to the potty for everything. And then something happened. He got splashed one time or something and it scared him. And he has not gone in the potty since it has been like nine solid months and he will not go in anything but pull-ups. I even told him. (laughs) So when I was his age or a little bit, yeah, about his age, my mom said, um, you can't have your birthday party until you start going in the potty because only big girls have birthday parties. And to be a big girl, you have to go in the potty. I'm like, okay. So I started going in the potty. I tried that with him and he goes, okay, I don't like birthday cake. I won't have a party. I'm like, party? Are you kidding? He's like, I don't like parties anyway. <laughs> yeah, he said that. I'm like, there's literally nothing I can do to make this kid go. He's, it's, we're just going to have to wait until he's ready. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's um, easier. Mine, mine, mine is, he's an outlier in that respect. Okay. 
Well, right now we're excited about the potty, you know, hopefully that lasts, but yeah, I was, my husband's taking like two weeks off in the next couple of weeks. And I was like, okay, like it's operation potty train, Omari time. Like he has to be potty trained by Christmas. Like I can't do two kids in diapers. Like I cannot do this. This is, yeah. Like, and he, he had like, takes these like grown man poops. Like I cannot handle this. (laughs) I know it's so gross. Yeah. Like I, I was just like, no, we're not, we're not doing this. So he was like, okay, okay. Just tell me what I need to do. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, Thank you for so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey mamas and lovers of mamas out there, motherhood is a struggle like none I have ever experienced. I'm Kareem Santish, founder and CEO of The Mama Struggle, where we promote radical honesty surrounding the good, the bad, and the ugly aspects of motherhood in the 21st century. Take a listen as I share my own reflections on being a mom of two, on being a stay-at-home parent, and on being a fledgling business owner. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And remember, the struggle is real.